Welcome to the second podcast in the OLAC series. This one focuses on coaching. I'm Stanley Dudek, your host for this podcast. I'm here with three educators, all with somewhat different perspectives on coaching, but with some shared beliefs as well. Josh Englehart is superintendent of the Painesville City Local Schools in Northeastern Ohio. Deborah Tully is the director of professional issues at the Ohio Federation of Teachers. And Rick Carrington is a school improvement consultant at SST 15. Let's get started by looking at a definition of coaching. The new OLAC module on coaching provides a simple but good definition. Coaching is typically one part of a professional development program. Combined with the other parts, coaching helps educators change their routine practices and organize schools better for teaching and learning. So what's needed to make coaching effective? Rick, do you have some thoughts? I think it's essential to build trust. And and so one of the pieces of advice I would give is just particularly as you're starting out, really work hard to build trust, uh, to, to assure the person you're working with, the, the coachee or the principal or whatever the person, uh, the role they're in and, and the, the coaching role you have with them, that you have their best interest at heart, that this is all about them and helping them become more effective in their role and to do everything that you can to assure them that that's, that's what this adventure is about and so that the trust is essential to do that. So, so I would say that, number one, uh, that, that you have to do that. Deb, do you agree? Coaching can really only be effective once there's a relationship of trust established between the coach and the teacher. There needs to be a relaxed atmosphere in which the teacher knows the coach is there to help, and there's no tie to evaluation. That is the thing that sets the scene for effective coaching. The coach needs to be in the role of facilitator and advocate for the teachers they coach. What does being an advocate really mean in this case? That's kind of an easy one in my mind from the perspective of the people being coached. Don't come into the school as, quote unquote, the savior. Listen to the concerns of the staff and what the situation is from their perspective in that building or that classroom. And be careful not to support compliance, support working with the teachers to spend time not filling out forms correctly, but actually using the time to determine the needs of the students and how to get those needs satisfied. Building on this foundation of trust and advocacy, what are the next steps? Josh, what are your thoughts? The most effective coaching that I've seen in my experience, it's guided by a co-identification of areas uh, for improvement and then guided by questions. I know that the consultants have been through a lot of training in terms of process coaching and an effective sustained process really comes back to that ability to, to continue to probe through questions. The coach can't give the answers, of course. The person being coached really needs to reflect and wrestle with issues and and be able to come up with solutions that are genuine to their context. While a coach at times should be able to give some suggestions, it's the line of questioning that's really important. The other thing that I think is important to coaching from an external person in that role is the realization of what running a school or a district really looks like. 
I guess an understanding of the work of the person being coached would also be critical if that person were a teacher or a paraprofessional. It's challenging sometimes for an external person in a coaching position when they are offering suggestions or guiding someone in a particular direction when they don't really understand the context of the demands of the job. It seems like you might agree with this, Deb. That is the biggest mistake I think anybody makes when they come in to quote-unquote help. And I understand why they feel the need to be there to make a difference. But you can't make a difference if you don't understand what the situation is from the perspective of the people in that situation. Rick, let me circle back to you. What do you see as next steps once trust and an advocacy stance are in place? I'd say be non-judgmental. How does this play out in your work as a leadership coach with principals? There are times in my experience when more than once the principals have not followed through on what they had said they were going to do. What we try to do is, okay, so let's, let's talk about what barriers you ran into, what prevented this from happening, and let them talk through that and then uh, maybe help them brainstorm, okay, so that here's where we're at now, so how do we move on? So again, I think being non-judgmental is a piece of advice that I would give. Is there anything else that needs to happen or continue to happen as a next step? The main thing that comes to my mind is just continued learning and practice, because I don't think those skills are necessarily complex. I don't think they're necessarily um, that there's more out there that we need to learn about, but we just need to to practice those skills so that when we're actually sitting across from somebody and putting them, putting them to use, that, that we do it well, we implement well. And I guess that's what I would say is just more practice so that we can use them as effectively as possible. It sounds like questioning, being non-judgmental, and giving coachees, if it's okay to call them that, opportunities for practice are some of the most important steps. What else seems important to add to this mix? The coaches and the teacher leaders, administration, all of them, it's imperative that they treat the coaches or the teachers and parents with respect. While the coach has been deemed to be someone with the knowledge and skills to support others, developing a relationship where the coaches feels the respect for his or her own skills and accepts that the coach is there to enhance and advance their skill level is very important. If they don't feel supported, it's just a very difficult relationship where one person is in charge of the other and needs to learn what that top person is telling them to do as opposed to sharing in the learning together. Do you want to add something else here, Rick? I think the other thing that's, that's critical for it to be effective is to have some uh, clarity and focus on what the work uh, is going to be about, what we're working towards improving. If we're not clear on that, then I don't think it's, it's going to be effective. So how does this relate to building leadership capacity? Josh, do you have some thoughts about this? In developing leadership capacity, for me, often the most basic challenge is defining what the actual work is. When you talk about leadership, that's such a, a massive construct. It means everything. So for me, I need to 
define what needs to be done and how it needs to be done, or maybe not how it needs to be done, but I need to make it clear what people's roles and responsibilities are in terms of leading processes. So while it's a very, very most basic thing, I believe that a high-quality improvement plan is the starting point for everything because when it's done correctly, it defines responsibilities and it defines timelines. The work has to be defined. Those structures have to be provided first because then it it makes clear what needs to be done, by whom, and when. So you control all of those variables, and now all that's left is the how. That's now isolated. The how is an isolated variable. So whenever you enter into ideally that kind of coaching model, to engage people in problem solving on how to get those tasks done. But it all starts with developing leadership starts with a clear definition of what the work is, isolating that how and supporting that then. Rick, is this your perspective too? I think leadership in an organization and particularly in a school district goes beyond just the roles. I think that's part of it. But leadership and I think research would bear this out, is not necessarily a position, but rather it's a set of actions that we take. It's a set of of, of things that we do. And so I, I think the question being based on my experience as a superintendent, you know, what's important in developing a leadership capacity for a superintendent, it's important to set the tone to say the highest priority in this school district is teaching and learning. It's what the adults do with kids that results in kids learning what they need to learn. And some ways to do that, I think a way to build the the, the instructional leadership capacity of your administrative team is for the superintendent to take an active role in working with, with the principals in increasing their learning about teaching and learning. So I, I think if anything is just keeping focused on what the core work is, that helps build that capacity. I guess I would say this too, just being passionate about what we do and being consistent about doing what's best for kids. I think that builds leadership capacity. Uh, when, When people see that we're committed to doing what's best for kids, then I think as a leader, uh, most people are going to join in with you on that, and they're going to row the boat in the same direction with you. So I, I think just, again, making it about kids and about learning, uh, if, if nothing else, and making sure your, your language and your actions back that up helps build that capacity. Is this true for SST consultants, too, perhaps when they coach leadership teams, DLTs, BLTs, and TBTs, in their improvement efforts using the OIP framework? Deb, do you have some ideas about this? State support teams clearly have to understand the OIP and the requirements um, that come with it without focusing strictly on compliance. Very often I hear from our members that the SSTs come in and are so focused making sure the proper forms are being fully filled out and the proper forms are being used, even if the teachers are saying this this form that we've created really meets our needs better. It gets in the way of spending the time discussing the students and what their needs are and what needs to be done to make sense locally and within that classroom or that building. 
compliance just gets in the way of everything. The OIP is a wonderful process, but as soon as we make it into something where you're checking off a list, you know, have I done this yet? Have I done that yet? Then we are getting away from the natural flow of providing that in, that all-important teaching and learning environment in which um, everybody can be successful. Josh, is this a perspective that you share? We have one particular school improvement consultant who is our primary contact. Now, she's our coach for OLI4 as well as our, our primary external consultant for all things school improvement. And what she's done is not only has she been present at the BLTs and the DLTs, but she also will attend whenever she's able to attend our principals meetings. There have been some curricular discussions that she's been in on. And of course, she comes in to to see a little bit of the TBT work as well. So her involvement or her immersion into the district to see as much of the picture as possible has really allowed her to be a lot more effective in that role because, again, more of the context that you can understand, the more meaningful your guidance or your lines of questioning can be because you understand some of the underpinnings of what's going on. I know that that's kind of big in general, but I've seen our consultant be extremely successful in just that kind of deep immersion And I know that there are some consultants that have 100 schools that they have to deal with. We do have the benefit of being a smaller region uh, where our folks are a little less spread out, but that kind of deeper immersion uh, beyond just the BLT and DLT is another thing that could be really important as far as being an effective coach from the SST role. Is this a perspective you share, Deb? To begin with, the TBT, in my opinion, is one of the most important things in reaching out directly to the classroom to affect change and student learning. Because when those teachers um, can be together and can collaborate on what their lesson plans could be, on what is happening with a particular student on a given day, or or, um, whatever is impacting learning, those are the times that the problems can be most easily solved. But the DLT then needs to be aware of what the TPT is doing so they can provide the resources and supports at the building level in order to help them to support their students. And likewise, the building leadership team has got to be able to have a representative on the district leadership team that allows the district to understand what supports need to be in place and what resources need to be in place in order for the classroom learning to occur. And so it's a large system where one builds upon the other in order to support student learning and the whole child, not just the learning aspect, but the whole child. Rick, I think you share this perspective too. How does this systems thinking fit with what we do as educators to make a difference? Do we really believe that we make a difference or not? Does quality instruction make a difference? Does having a good, positive relationship with students make a difference? And of course it does. The research says it, and we had seen it. And so there was a point where our district went from being average to doing really well. And when you begin to see that and you share that with folks, it takes excuses away because you say, look, we did these things that we knew were right, and look what's happened. Look how our kids have grown. Look how they have achieved. 
and you can't go backwards because it was the same kids coming from the same homes with the same problems and the same uh, challenges. And so we couldn't say, well, it's, these kids can't do it because of this because we'd already proven that they can if we as adults commit ourselves to it. And so on the first <laughs> – I used to love to do this. On the first day of school, our first teachers meeting, we'd have the whole district in there, and we would have our results and be able to share that and say, do we make a difference? Absolutely. Look, we've already proven that if we do the right things and we commit ourselves to it, that that in spite of what the kid's last name is or where they live from or who their parents are or their, their economics or whatever those challenges, they can learn. They can learn. And I think it was part of it that whole idea of collective efficacy is believing that what we do makes a difference. And we have seen that it does. We are convinced of it because we have, we have tasted it and we have seen it. We've done it, and we've seen the results of it. So that's a long-winded response to that. But I think, if anything, it, it had to do with just strong uh, building leadership, principals leading the staff to believe there are certain things that we can do when those kids get here, the time we have them till the time they leave, that are proven to, to impact their learning. And let's commit ourselves to that. How do you see all of this connecting to what's going on in the OLI4 program? For listeners who don't know about OLI4, it's a professional development program for school leaders. OLI4 stands for Ohio Leadership for Inclusion, Implementation, and Instructional Improvement. As part of the program, principals receive non-directive coaching support from experienced consultants, many of whom work for state support teams, that is, SSTs. OI4 has really allowed SST personnel, and I'll just speak my own experience as an SST person, to first of all learn more about effective coaching skills. What are those skills? What do we need to know? And secondly, how to put those skills to use in working with principals. There's seems to be always in the work that we do in, in any field a knowing-doing gap, knowing what we should do but actually putting it into practice. And what OLI4, I think, has allowed SST personnel to do is better bridge that gap between what we know uh, we need to do in coaching and what, what effective coaching skills are, but actually doing them and putting them to work. Josh, is this your sense of OLI4 as well? The OLI4 leadership performance coaching model is really built around a ton of self-reflection the ongoing coaching, the prompts and the tasks that are put before the leaders who participate in it, they're all designed to make sure that we're slowing down, we're stepping back, and we're really reflecting on our practices. And so I think the model does a really, really good job of that. It's no secret. We all know that as educators, regardless of what our role is, that that reflection, that that persistent, consistent self-reflection is a necessary component. But particularly for leaders, I think sometimes the pace of our work is such that reflection time, you know, we don't necessarily do it consistently. The OLI4 coaching model is really built to sustain that, to make it a recurrent practice. That's where the learning really takes place. So just that 
sustained self-reflection through the coaching, through the activities, is what I'd point to as being a really important piece of that model. How has OLI4 made this possible? Rick, as an OLI4 coach, do you have some thoughts about this? One of the things I've appreciated about the training for the coaches in OLI4 has been that opportunity to practice those coaching skills. So so not just sit and learn about them, but actually try to put ourselves in situations where we're practicing with our colleagues. And that helps them when we're actually putting those skills into practice with principals. So I'd say as much as anything, that's that's what the OLI4 project has done to help build those coaching skills. I've learned a lot about coaching from listening to the three of you share your thoughts. Thank you, Deb, Rick, and Josh. And thank you, OLAC listeners, for joining us for this podcast. To learn more about coaching, please visit the new coaching module on the OLAC website. And to learn more about OLI4, the program's website is located at www.oli-4, that is the number 4, .org. I'm Stanley Dudek. I provide support and technical assistance for OLAC podcasts through the University of Cincinnati's Systems Development and Improvement Center. Credit for our podcast music goes to Expendable Friend, whose musical composition is licensed under a Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License.